0: So this morning, if you're new with us, we're beginning a series um, in Matthew's Gospel. In a certain way, we began it during Advent. We were dwelling primarily at Advent and Christmas in Matthew's Gospel, and we're going to be there for the next several months. And the reason we're staying put in this particular part of the Bible has to do with our need for the forming of Christ's life in us. Paul said he was praying for the Galatians. He said, I'm in agony with you until Christ is formed in you. Paul was praying for and working for the transformation of people's lives to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And that is something which we want to particularly focus on in the coming months. We want to come and sit at the feet of Christ and hear his words and see his deeds and his mighty signs and follow him all the way in ministry, all the way to the cross, through the resurrection, in his ascension. We want to... As the writer of Hebrews said, fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. We do not regard conversion to Christ as something inconsequential, as if it were merely mental assent and leaves us as we've always been. We are not yet what we will be, but in conversion, we are made new and we are not what we were. But we also don't think of it as something magical. That suddenly eliminates or eradicates every single impulse within us or attitude or deed which is contrary to the will of God. It's just suddenly all gone that the moment you become a Christian you become instantly super holy and spiritual and perfect. If you've been a Christian longer than three minutes you discovered that was true. We all have a long way to go. John, the apostle said, we know that when he appears, we will be like him, for we shall see him just as he is. But while that day remains in the future, and that's the day of our perfection, or what Paul calls our glorification, we are, until that day, being transformed. So while it's not inconsequential, and it's not magical, it is transformational. You and I are being called into the image of Christ. Paul says that's our destiny, that we should be, this is Romans chapter 8, all those whom God has called, he justified, those whom he's justified, he glorified. Why? So that we might be, he says in Romans eight twenty nine, conformed to the image of Christ. It's God's desire for all people to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And so our Our pastoral prayer, our pastoral hope, our focus over these next several months is that as we open up the Scriptures, as we open up the Gospels in particular, as we sit at the feet of Jesus, as we follow Jesus, as we listen to Jesus, as we behold Him, as we see Him, we will be transformed by Him. Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he said, "...as you behold the glory of the Lord, you will be changed." Now, probably some of you had some New Year's resolutions. I don't know how many of those are still intact. All right. And frankly, they just don't matter. But what you do need to know this morning is that you have a new creation resolution. It's not one you made. It's one God made. He has resolved to change us into the image of His Son. That is something we can rejoice in. How does that happen? Well, we pray that our eyes are open to the glory and the wonder of who he is. And as you open up the Jesus story in the gospel, all four gospels start the Jesus story not with Jesus, but with this remarkable figure named John the Baptist. In fact... When we first encounter this man who is regarded as the forerunner of the Lord, the one who's getting everybody ready to see Jesus, we encounter him, not on a hillside preaching, we encounter him in utero. He is in the womb of his mother, Elizabeth. His father was a priest. And you'll remember the same angel that came to Mary came to Elizabeth and said, you're going to have a baby boy, and he's going to be the forerunner of the Lord. And then Mary, after the angel Gabriel visited her and told her that she would conceive and bear the Son of God, she has Jesus in her womb. She goes to visit Elizabeth, because Elizabeth is her cousin. And she walks into the room. And do you remember what happens as soon as Mary walks into the room with Jesus in her womb? And she sees Elizabeth with John the Baptist in her womb. Do you remember what happened? It says, John the Baptist did a backflip inside of Elizabeth's womb. He encountered Jesus and, in utero, said, That's the one. And he started. It says, the, it says in the text, The baby in her womb leapt for joy. Can you imagine that? That's a kick. That's a kick. He left. Woo! There's the one. Now, you may think as a parent it's your responsibility to see your children filled with the Spirit. But when John the Baptist kicked in the womb of Elizabeth, she was filled with the Holy Spirit. The baby caused his mother to be filled with the Spirit. That's starting your ministry really early. (laughs) That is a fruitful, effective ministry. If you see people filled with the Spirit and you're still in your mother's womb. And she began to prophesy about Mary's boy the son that would come the prophetic impulse that was in that baby in her womb began to spill out of the mother's mouth and talk about how the son of God would come to free and liberate the people of God and so from his earliest moments post-conception John the Baptist is calling out look there he is there's the son of God And so I want you to read with me this morning what the Scriptures say about John in Matthew chapter 3. If you've got a print version of the Bible, you can turn there. If you've got an app, open it up. You can also follow along on the screen. I'm going to read Matthew 3, 1 to 11. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt about his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. am not sure that's keto approved, but there you go. <laughs> Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about Jordan were going out to him into the wilderness. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. When he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones To raise up children for Abraham, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. He who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is the gospel of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Lord, would you please, by the same Holy Spirit who filled John... And caused Matthew to write these words, would, would you cause that same Spirit to inscribe these words in our hearts and transform us by them so that we too might behold the beauty of the Lord and see Him in all of His splendor? Amen. Amen. So, what is, what is it about John? Why do the Gospels all start with John? Well, John is a particular figure who is sent, as he says, To prepare the way. Let me talk to you for just a minute about the mission that John was on. John, he says, was sent to prepare the way. Matthew's burden, one of his burdens in his gospel, because he he may have even written the gospel, scholars tell us, in Hebrew. Uh, It may have been a very, very early version of that gospel, and he's particularly burdened to communicate the gospel to Jewish people. And so everything that he writes about the Jesus story, he wants to root in the Old Testament texts, the Hebrew Bible. And so he he identifies the, the beginning of the Jesus movement as something rooted in Isaiah, and rooted in Malachi, and rooted in Hosea. And so Isaiah talks about someone a prophet in the wilderness crying out prepare the way for yahweh yahweh is coming let the let the hills be brought low let the valleys be lifted up and a highway for the lord prepared what's he making a reference to he's making a reference to road building road construction in the ancient near eastern world Because royal figures would come to visit certain towns to which no adequate highway had been constructed for such a retinue. Royal figures did not travel alone. They came in large companies. They came with large military forces. And so when they visited an area, they often sent road builders ahead of them to prepare the way to build a road through a wilderness rocky desert places that were inhospitable they had to prepare a way to come into the city And that means that John is a kingdom road builder. Now, I want you to put yourself for just a moment on I-95. I know that disturbs your soul even even to to use your imagination. But put yourself up there on I-95. You're headed headed along and everything's moving along at a pretty good pace. And then you see one of those big electronic signs. It starts flashing, road construction ahead, next five miles. What happens in your soul when you see that sign? you're filled with the joy of Christ, I know, right? That's what, we won't say what you say when you see that sign. But it isn't rejoicing. Nobody likes road work. Nobody likes the road builder. In, in, he's slowing everything down. He's making us pause. He's holding everything up. Nobody likes road construction. We just like what happens when it's done. And so John is the road construction guy. He's the one coming on the scene saying, slow down. You're going to have to take a little bit aside here. We're going to have to build a highway for the king. Here's the amazing thing. Listen to this. There is a king, the king, a king like no other, who is coming to you. All those years you've longed for the Messiah to come, all those prayers, all those promises, all those hopes, the kingdom, the king is right here. He's at hand, and I'm here to get the road ready for him to come to town. Now, interestingly, he doesn't do this in Jerusalem. He could have. He was the son of a priest. Many of the prophets were from the priestly line. But John goes out in the wilderness. Why? Well, again, Malachi, Hosea. All of these prophets talk about Isaiah as well. God meeting with his people in the wilderness. The wilderness was always a a unique place where God met with his people. He had Moses bring his people out into the wilderness of Sinai. There he met with them. That's where he made a covenant with them. God said to Hosea, I'm going to bring... My people, back to me. I'm going to bring them out into the wilderness, and I'm going to remarry them. I'm going to begin afresh with them. Isaiah said, this is a voice in the wilderness. God always called his people out into these wilderness places to meet him, to step aside from all of the things which would ordinarily be their occupations, which would distract them. Come out into this place of desolation so that you can experience regeneration. Often God comes to his people and he takes us outside of the comfortable places and he takes us into the places that are desolate and hard. We shouldn't be surprised that God brings us into these places. But beloved, here's the truth. I will bring you into the wilderness, God said through Hosea, and there I will meet with you and you will know me. I have torn you, but I will heal you. It's a tender word from God. And so John is sent, and the people begin to gather to him, and they hear his message. What is he doing? He is saying, I'm not the Messiah. I'm the one who is preparing the way for him who is to come. John is a pointer towards Jesus, He's pointing towards him. My favorite place on the planet, honestly, um, is Westminster Abbey in London. London's my favorite city in the world. Westminster Abbey, my favorite spot inside London. One of my favorite things to do is just stand outside of it at night and watch its huge towers Light up the night sky of London and just glow there on the banks of the Thames. It's a remarkable sight. And I've been out there as kind of groups of tourists have stood around looking at it, saying, wow, that's amazing. You know what I've never heard anybody say? I've never heard anybody say, what a wonderful spotlight. No one ever comments, on because the towers, the building, doesn't have a light of its own, There are giant spotlights in Parliament Square that are shining up on it. But no one ever comments on the light that is pointing on the structure itself. And that's why it's sometimes hard for us to know what to do with John. Because John, in a certain way, is launching things. He's pointing away from himself. We don't really pay the kind of attention to him that we should. But that's as he would want it. John said later about Jesus, he must increase and I must decrease. And so he's always pointing him away from himself and pointing us to Christ. In the Eastern Orthodox tradition, if you were to go, say, into St. Mark's just down the road, beautiful Greek Orthodox church, or any other Orthodox church, you would see the iconostasis up at the front and the the doors, the great center doors, which are the place through which Christ will come. And on either side are two icons, one of Mary, one of John the Baptist, and they're both pointing. Sometimes Protestants aren't sure what to do with John the Baptist, not sure what to do with Mary. But remember Mary's last recorded words in the New Testament. She says about Jesus, whatever he tells you to do, do it. Those are, that's a good message. Thank you, Mary. That's a good sermon. Thank God for Mary, who brought the Savior to the world, who lent her humanity to divinity so that the incarnation could take place. And she tells us, listen to him. Thank God for John the Baptist who says, he has to increase, I have to decrease. Let me point you to him. How did he do that? Well, he did it with his message, and his message has three key qualities to it. Here they are. Turn, burn, and discern. Now, let me give those to you and just unpack them real quickly. Here's the first thing John the Baptist says. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He says, repent. Now, when you hear the word repent, we sometimes hear that negatively. It has the connotation of something bad. I don't know why we hear it that way it must be our fallenness because the scriptures tell us the kindness of God leads to repentance that repentance is a grace from God a gift from God in our lives why because it turns us from that which would destroy us towards the one who can give us life that has to be good news but we have to be stopped in our tracks so that we recognize the issues that we're facing and then we can deal with them. That's why we need somebody to say, hey, stop, road works. I'm plowing the ground. I'm bringing down hills. I'm raising up valleys. God's building a highway into your heart to change you. And the first part of that is to stop and turn. the the Hebrew term for repentance means to turn around and go in a new direction. The Greek term means to change your mind. Make it the best of both worlds. Change your mind about the way you're living and turn around and go in a new direction. That's what John is saying. And you need people, we all need people who will come to us and say, there's something alarming going on there. A few weeks ago, a few months ago now, a a young lady named Nadia Popovicci, up in Seattle was at a hockey match, the very first home ice hockey match between the brand new NHL franchise, the Seattle Kraken, who will not win the Stanley Cup this year. That will be won by the Florida Panthers. And the, um, the, Tampa, the Tampa fans are slightly alarmed by that prospect. But, but, but uh, they were playing the Vancouver Canucks. And, and and Nadia had great seats. Now she had a background as a an emergency operator, and she was a volunteer worker in the hospital. And she had great seats right behind the glass where the bench of the Canucks were. And so she could see the team and the people working for the team. And she saw the equipment manager, humble equipment manager, a guy named Brian Hamilton. And she noticed something. She noticed something on the back of his neck, you know, right there where none of us, we can never see what's on the back of our neck. She noticed something, it was a mole, it had an irregular shape to it, it was raised, and she knew from her background that was a cancerous growth. And so she typed onto her cell phone, cancer, growth, back of your neck, see the doctor, and put it up against the glass. Now I wanted you to think about the boldness it took for her to do that for a second. I mean, if you noticed it, you might think, am I right? Do I have this right? I'm not sure. And should I say anything? I don't know. And she did it. She just slapped it right up there in the glass. And he saw it and then turned away, and that was it. And then a few weeks later came out on social media from Brian Hamilton, the guy from the Canucks, the equipment manager. I'm looking for this girl. She saved my life. He called the doctor. He took her message seriously. He went to the physician. It was a malignant melanoma, and the doctor said, If you weren't here, you'd be dead in four years. You know what that is? That's called repentance. You're, you have something pointed out to you you couldn't even see by a faithful messenger that says, Stop. This is going to kill you. Pay attention to it. Deal with it. Turn around. Turn around, deal with it. It saved his life. By the way, the the teams got together and gave her a scholarship for medical school. That seems like a good response to me. And, And Canuck fans and Kraken fans are all unified. Isn't that sweet? Maybe they won't hit on the ice anymore. I don't know. We'll see what happens. John says the kingdom of God is right here for you. God's rule, God's reign, God's presence his power is coming into your life right now. You need to turn and be ready for that. Here's the second thing. He says he says burn. He says burn. I'm getting musical background there. Thank you for that. I appreciate that. So I don't know if they're playing me off. I'm not sure. I think that's probably what that is. Like the academy, you know, I'd like to thank my mother and my father. I still have 2 minutes and 30 seconds and I promise I can get these in. He said he said he said burn, he says turn, he says burn, why? Well here's the thing about this fire, this fire comes to purge us, it comes to light something inside of us, he says "When when the one who comes after me arrives, he is going to do something different than my baptism, he's going to baptize you with fire and the Holy Spirit, why fire? The winnowing fork is in his hand, he says. Why, is it, why a winnowing fork? Now bear with me, if you will, in this, all of you, us who are urban, early 21st century dwellers, bear with me in a Near Eastern, 1st century agrarian metaphor. His, his winnowing fork is in his hand. He's going to light a fire. Why a winnowing fork? Well, this is a, he's talking about how grain is dealt with, when grain is brought in from the field, from wheat harvest. And in order to separate the wheat from the chaff, that outer shell that gets discarded, so you've got the grain you can really, you can really deal with, how do you separate that out? Well, in the, that would be just too much to do with our hands. And in the ancient world, they had a winnowing fork. It was a big wooden fork. And they would stick it into the pile of grain, and they would toss it up into the air, and it would separate Out, because the chaff was lighter than the wheat. So the wheat would fall down into a pile, and the chaff would be caught in the breeze, and it would be blown along. And they collected the wheat up into the barn. What did they do with the chaff? They burned that. And so here's what John's saying. He's saying, people, here's what the one who's coming after me is going to do. He is going to get his fork out, and he's going to toss you up in the air. He's just going to throw you up in the air. And he's going to do that. You're going to be tossed so the Spirit can separate out of your life what's good and what's bad, and He's going to burn up the bad, and He's going to keep the good. Aren't you glad you came this morning for that message? Yeah. Man, you, we need, I need those things in my life which are displeasing to God to be eliminated from my life. I want the Holy Spirit to blow through my life and take away those aspects of who I am, the pride The self sufficiency, the envy, the anger, all the lusts, all the fears, all the anxieties, all these things which trouble our souls, to take those and move them to one side and consume them in the fires of grace. And so, Christian, do not be surprised, Peter writes at the fiery ordeal you go through. God lights a fire in us through the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit comes and does one more thing that John talks about. He doesn't do it in this passage. He does it in John's Gospel. John relates this final message from John, John the Baptist. He says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Discern. That word behold is so important. That Greek term that's used there means see something. See something you don't normally see. See something that you would miss if it weren't for this moment. Discern it. Turn. Burn. Discern. Discern what? You see Jesus? He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It says that two disciples of John were standing with him and he said, do you see that man? There's the Lamb. Now Jesus wasn't floating three feet off the ground. There was nothing about him that said, he wasn't wearing a big sweatshirt that said, you know, straight out of Nazareth, Lamb of God. That's not what he was doing. There was nothing about him that you looked and you went, oh, obviously, Messiah. But John said, there he is. He he saw what other people didn't see, and he's a pointer. He said, you see him? There he is. And he took two images from the Old Testament, the lamb and the scapegoat. He took Passover and he took... Atonement and he put them together in a way that no one had ever done before. He said, Behold the lamb who takes away sin. The lamb is Passover. Remember, they would slay the lamb, put the blood on the doorpost, and then when the angel of death passed over, they would be spared. Taking away sin, well, that's Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, where the sins of the people were symbolically laid on not a lamb, but a goat who was two goats, actually. One was killed, and the other one carried them away into the wilderness. He said, behold the one who takes Passover and fulfills it. Behold the one who takes the Day of Atonement and fulfills it. He's the Messiah. He's a king like you never expected. And when he shed his blood for you, it delivered you, and it took away your sin. There he is. There he is. My friends, we need to hear John's message this morning, that our sins have been taken away and we have been freed from the angel of death. You and I are forgiven people, liberated people, and what we need to do is hear John say to us, fix your eyes on him. Because when you see Jesus, my friends, when the Holy Spirit opens you to see Jesus, that will change you. And I want to pray that the Lord does that work in us today. Pray with me. Lord, we ask you, by your grace and for your glory, to send the Spirit's breezes and flames into our heart. Lord, separate the wheat from the chaff in our souls and burn it up. Burn up the chaff and gather the wheat into the barn. Lord, fix our eyes on you. And Lord, grant us the grace to turn from sin and to follow you. And for all those this morning, Lord, who may not know you, who haven't yet met you, I pray that you will take them from death to life. And all God's people said, amen. Won't you stand with me and let's worship the Lord together.